0: This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're talking Michigan Upland bird hunting, murder mystery of the fictional sort, and much more with Charles McElravey. Thanks for tuning in for episode number 130. podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with on X. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, if you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukanubasportingdog.com And by CZ USA, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind from the Bob White and Sharp Tail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight, Wing Shooter Elite, over and unders. They've got pumps. They've got semi-autos. CZUSA has a shotgun for you. Learn more at cz-usa.com and by Doctra. For over 30 years, Doctra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Learn more at Doctra.com. And by ESP, electronic shooters protection, custom-molded, custom-fit hearing protection that lets you hear what you want to hear, blocks out everything that you don't. Learn more and get yourself a pair at ESP America. And by Sage and Breaker, makers of gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible. And they're proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. Learn more at SageandBreaker.com. And by Dakota 283, unparalleled protection, one-piece rotomole mold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Check out their kennels and the rest of their products at Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Chris from Michigan. Chris sent me a message, sent me some feedback on the show. He's been listening to a bunch of episodes. In 2020, Chris got re-engaged, reactivated in the outdoors, which included a little bit of fishing, up and bird hunting whole bunch of other stuff. Happy to hear Chris is back out there and appreciate the feedback on the podcast. Project Upland t-shirt headed his way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Send us feedback like Chris did. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. We appreciate it. Love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, jumping into today's interview with Charles McElravey. Charles is a michigan upland bird hunter he's a former board member of pheasants forever and quill forever spent about two decades working for the conservation mission of pheasants forever and quill forever he is now an author he's written three or four novels with more on the way i have since read two of charlie's novels very much enjoyed them they are of the murder mystery sort thriller courtroom drama with a big focus on michigan a little bit of fishing a little bit of upland bird hunting good stuff highly recommend it i very much enjoyed the books and i intend to read the third one, and probably anything else that Charlie writes because I really enjoy his style. If you're one of the listeners in Michigan, check these out. I think you'll like them. We're going to talk about those today. We're going to talk about Charlie's background in upland bird hunting, his work for Pheasants Forever, and a whole bunch of other stuff. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Charles McElravey. And welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Charlie McElravy. How are you doing today?
1: Good, good. How are you, Nick?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and the listeners. You could say we're, we're going to step a little bit outside of what we normally talk about on the podcast a little bit later in our interview, but we are going to spend plenty of time talking about the things that we all love and why folks tune into this every week. So, Charlie, just tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're located, and some of the things that are keeping you busy at this time.
1: I live in East Lansing, Michigan um, with my wife, uh, two bird dogs four cats, which has its own issues. And, um, we have three kids who sort of come and go, especially right now, um, during the pandemic, but yeah. we're uh, right in central, lower Michigan, south of, um, grouse and woodcock country, right in the middle of pheasant country. And, you know, Michigan's a pretty great waterfall state. So yeah, right around the waterfall also.
0: So is upland bird season hundred percent shut down over there? Or could you, I suppose you could probably get out to a pheasant farm or something.
1: Yeah, the preserves are open. The grouse season, we have a December grouse season that ended the 31st. So it's been over for about two weeks. Yep. You know, we're, my dogs and I are just starting to go into withdrawal right now.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I it hasn't 100% set in for me because I keep I've got this opportunity to possibly go out to South Dakota, and I don't know if you've been paying attention, but you've, you've probably been experiencing the mild weather over your way. But the weather in South Dakota, like they had 50s and 60s this week, and now they're we're looking at 40s for the next few days. So I'm I'm trying to like keep the possibility alive in my mind, even though it's kind of unrealistic.
1: Yeah, well, it's good to have hope.
0: Exactly. Yep. Yep. Something to hope for. And like I mentioned on our, the interview I put out yesterday, if my season is over, I'll be fine with that. It, but it's a long ways to go until September of 2021.
1: Oh boy, is it. We have a late goose season here, but I don't know if I'm going to get out for that or not.
0: So late goose season, what would you, would you be on the water somewhere? Field. it would probably okay. be field running. Okay. Okay. Well, how was your 2020 upland bird season did you like a lot of folks have the opportunity just based on uh certain things going on with the pandemic did you have some more time to get into the woods less time or about the same
1: um i'd say it was more but it wasn't really because of the pandemic i just uh, wanted to do more and, and was able to and um our number two son if i played golf and if i could hit a golf club straight we could hit michigan state campus from here with a driver okay but number two son moved home to get a master's in uh dietetics so he was around so that probably you know i I had a pretty willing hunting partner when i needed one that helps Mm -hmm. helps
0: a lot okay so we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few different things here charlie but i want to as i do with a lot of my guests i'd love to get your origin story and sort of set the stage as to how hunting, the outdoors, you know, specifically upland hunting, but a lot of times the outdoors is wrapped into it. How did that enter your life? What were your first opportunities like to experience upland bird hunting?
1: I'd always spent a lot of time outdoors growing up because my parents camped and they always had sailboats, so we were outside a lot. But no one in my family hunted, and I never picked up a shotgun until I was 40. Wow. Yeah. And what happened Well, of course, that was quite a while ago now, but what happened was we had a yellow lab at the time that my, a female who my three-year-old son named Fred, and the backyard was fenced in with a stockade fence. And there was also a dog pen in there with like, a, you know, it was good size, but it was about an eight foot fence. And one day Fred started to look a little heavier than normal. And, um, one thing led to another, and it turned out that she was pregnant. And on my son's birthday, this number one son's birthday is Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, we had no idea what was going to happen other than Fred was going to have puppies. So, But Fred wow. had six purebred yellow lab puppies because it turned out there was this um, roaming lab in the neighborhood who got out all the time who was also you know, had a nice pedigree. <laughs> I jumped the fence, right? So we ended up with six puppies. They were born in my mother's basement on Thanksgiving Day, and um, I ended up keeping two of them. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, I had these two labs. I had <laughs> to try bird hunting, and that's what happened. <laughs> That's crazy. It, it, that story it, it is, is not
0: un, not uncommon though. I mean, a lot of, I'm always, I'm sometimes surprised and maybe it's just a different way that I came about it, but the amount of people that have a dog and it's not, it's not even always a hunting breed, but of course with a lab, you've got a hunting dog there. So it's not a huge leap for you to think I should maybe take these dogs hunting.
1: That's right. <laughs> so and well, of course that go, oh, go ahead. I well,
0: I, well, I was just going to say, I wanted to get an idea of you know, what was the first thing that you did? I mean, did you have any idea what to do, where to go? What was that like?
1: No, and you know, no, I didn't, but I had a couple of buddies who hunted, and the first thing I did was um, some duck hunting, and then I got interested in upland hunting, and then I sent these dogs uh, to a very good friend of mine, who is now a very good friend of mine, a dog trainer, and then that, you know, that kind of helped get going, and then I don't know if you, you probably don't remember Jim Goodhart, but he was, I don't he was one of the original Pheasants Forever reps um, in Michigan. Okay. And so this is, this is almost 30 years ago. And um, there was an ad in the paper said there's going to be an organizational meeting for Pheasants Forever. And my wife was quite pregnant at the time. I thought, you know, I ought to, it's time for me to give something back to the world. So I think maybe I'll go to this meeting. So I, fool that I was, you know, went to the meeting and there were five or six people there. And Jim Goodhart was very, very passionate about what he was doing and very persuasive. And about an hour later, you know, I ended up being the, the first president of the Ingham County Pheasants Forever chapter. And then from there, of course, you know, it was a dollar down and the chase was on, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, I'm around all these other crazy people.
0: Yeah, they sucked you right in, if you will. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, we didn't cover that right away, and, and it's definitely something I want to get into. So let's maybe use that as a as an entryway into your. I don't know if we call it a journey or a tenure with pheasants forever. A little bit. So you became chapter president. Was it a newly formed chapter then?
1: Yeah, it was yeah, it was a brand new chapter, okay. and um, I don't even think there was an election. I, um, everybody, this was the at the time it was at the Allen Town Hall, which is out in the country. And, um, as I said, there were five or six of us there. And by the time Goodhart was done, he had all the chapter officers he needed. And then we were supposed to put on a banquet, you know, which I had, I'd been to a couple of DU banquets, but I had no idea whatsoever what to do. Sure. Um, I think this was about 1993 and I think our first banquet was either, and it was probably in 94. So, so anyway, I ended up being president of that chapter or that chapter for 15 years. And then, um along the line, I was asked to join the national board. And then from there, I was chair of the board for four years. And just now, well, there's now term limits on the board. So I was just term limited off the board last year. So, and then um, I'm still on some advisory committees. And then just this fall, you know, we're all having a terrible time raising money because we can't have banquets. Yeah. And um, that's a pretty, it's not, it's one of the most important fundraising things that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever do, so three, or four buddies of mine and I got together, and formed a new chapter called the Capital City Pheasant, Capital City Chapter for Pheasants Forever, and the whole purpose was to raise money with a sweepstake. So five of us just finished raising twenty-five grand, netting twenty-five grand from a sweepstake. So, oh. you know, there there was uh there's a lot of stories about that, but because um, we'd never done that before either, but it turned out.
0: No, you were on the you were on the board of Pheasants Forever. Is is the board of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? Is at the same board, or are there two distinct boards?
1: It's t- um, it's two. Bo- it's the same board. Okay. Quail Forever was started about fifteen years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's the same board, you know. But we try and get quail hunters, sure. Um, pheasant hunters, of course, and then people with different geographic backgrounds. So. It's all, it's all together. Whether it stays that way in long term, I don't know, but that's how it is right
0: now. Right. And, and you were on that board for, was it 20 years that you told me the other day? Almost, yeah, 20 yeah. years. Yeah. That's incredible. The, I've certainly, I, I would say I've probably, probably safe to say I've been aware of Pheasants Forever for the past 20 years, just being interested in upland hunting for a long time. But I know the organization has come a long, long ways. What was it like to be that tied to the organization through its growth over the past couple yeah. of decades?
1: Well, one of the, when I started the budget combined for pheasants for forever, including all the chapters was 12 million. The year I left, it was about a hundred million wow. in terms of revenue. And it was, the growth was incredible. It used to be, you know, there were probably 30, maybe 40 or 50 employees and you can knew everybody. I uh, can you know I knew everybody, right. Just yeah. because there weren't that many and the board meetings were usually in, uh, in the cities and, um. But now there's, I think, close to 400 employees, so it's pretty much impossible now to just keep track of it. But it's the one thing, well, in, in addition to an, a, a bunch of great things, the one thing that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have always done is we've always lived within our means so that when things get tough, we have enough money to get through and we don't go out of business. And, yeah. and you know, a lot of organizations, conservation charitable or otherwise, don't do that. And I think it's a huge credit you know, to the management and the board that we're always able to um, you know, really stay in business. And especially right now, that's very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this, this e- economy and the things that are going on at the macro level are certainly exposing a lot of, if you don't have cash reserves or you don't have diversification in the portfolio, this is the kind of thing that can undo a lot of that.
1: Right. Well, With we had it- 700 banquets canceled.
0: Yeah, that's in, that's incredible, and that's across the board with a lot of the conservation organizations. I right. know that's really really tough. The other big thing that happened for Pheasants Forever is Pheasant Fest was canceled, which was yes. going on within the next month. And I mean, that's obviously the repercussions of that are yet to be seen. But that's a that's a big loss for not only Pheasants Forever, but a lot of the folks in the industry. I mean, that was a that's one of the most looked forward to events I think across the board.
1: Right? Yeah, I went. I was at. I think I may, during my tenure, I was at every one except one when we had a illness in the family. But, yes, and that thing grew. The first time we did it, we did it in St. Paul yep. at, at a not-so-big hotel, and we were wondering if anyone was going to show up. <laughs> and then it was packed, right? I mean, you just don't know right? with these kinds of things. Yep. Um, we've also done some stuff that didn't work very well, but that, you know, this Pheasant Fest thing has turned out to be, a huge thing so it's a big loss
0: yeah i've tried to remind folks of that a number of times on the podcast throughout the year that our conservation organizations that dedicate so much of their time and resources to the birds that we love and the habitat that we love and they could use the support so folks if folks have the ability to support at this time now you know now more than ever is is good
1: yeah that's for sure that's for sure
0: well, now that you are not on the Pheasant's Forever board, I know you're still involved and you're still I'm I'm sure invested in the organization and their mis- mission, but what's what's keeping you busy? Are you are, do you feel like you have an abundance of time and, and that's maybe why you spent a little bit more time hunting this fall?
1: You know, I'm still um more or less uh I've always been self-employed and I'm still I'm still working um okay. the the um I also you know, write novels and I've been blessed to have mystery novels published with another one coming out this spring but i just decided that you know i'm not getting any younger and i just might as well do enjoy myself as much as i can doing this and then i've got two great dogs right now and a bunch of pals who like to go do it so um i, I think I, I was a decision that the future is now i just ought to go do this yeah
0: Good deal. Well, we're going to get to those mystery novels. I won't leave the listeners hanging there. That's, that's one of the main reasons we brought you on today, but let's circle back to, we, we talked about the interesting way that you happened upon two young lab puppies and kind of found your way into the world of hunting at a later stage in life. Now today you've got, you've got a lab and an English setter, correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of hunting that you're doing with, with those two dogs now.
1: The um the lab I have is uh, I've had a bunch of labs and he's the best one I've ever had and he um just, he loves to hunt and he um really loves to duck hunt he's um I actually got him from kennel up there uh, Dennis Anderson oh. was one of the founders as yep. you probably know of Cousins yep. Forever his wife um, had a they sold they recently sold it but they had a great kennel and this dog's name is Cash he's a black lab. And I got cash from that kennel. He's a, he's a British lab, so he's a little smaller. He's okay. about 60, 60, 65 pounds or so. And, um, you know, he just will retrieve until your arm falls off. And the nice thing about him hunting is that, the duck hunting, you know, he's steady to shot. So he doesn't go until I release him, you know, after when a bird's down. So yeah. that just makes it so much easier it's so much more fun because you don't need to worry about the dog running around doing stupid things or getting shot, God forbid, or anything like that. So right. um, he had, my um, he also is an excellent pheasant hunter. Once in a while, I have a collar for him that I only need to use maybe once in a while because he can get a little wrapped up in what he's doing and forget that I'm with him. That doesn't happen very often. And then my setter is five. I got... Him from a kennel up in um, Wisconsin called uh, Burl Kennels, and he's a, about a almost a sixty pound uh, ginger, you know, ginger and white rhyme and, and he's turned out to be an excellent dog. When I first got him, I was afraid he didn't he didn't like birds, and I thought, oh my god, what's am I going to going to have a really good looking pet <laughs> who doesn't hunt? But you know, I know you have setters, but my experience with setters is they can develop a little bit slowly, and and I've certainly you know, heard that a lot, yeah. I don't know if yours have, but by the second year, he was fine. But I was kind of worried the first year. So, um, you know, he's an excellent grouse and woodcock dog, excellent pheasants. Um, we were in North Dakota earlier this fall when, you know, when it got so it got really cold, as you probably are aware. We got frozen out of duck hunting but mm-hmm. there was quite a bit of snow on the ground. And, um, you know, I don't know how many times I need to tell myself to always trust the dog. But we all could use name, that reminder. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, well anyway, so Topper's on point and this was like it was getting to be four o'clock and I don't know how I don't know how many steps I'd walk, but it was sort of turning into a death march and I really just wanted to be back at the car and back at the motel having a beer. But the guy I was with said, I guess I wasn't even looking at him because he wasn't that far ahead of me. He said, Charlie, your dog's on point. So I look up and in my defense, there was snow and wheeze and upper really did blend in. But, and then when he has a really hard point, he crouches, you know, which is of course why they call him setter. And there, and, and there aren't that many times there in the course of a season when he gets that hard a point, but he was crouched so much, he was also lying down. So I walk up there and released him and he wouldn't move. And then I started to kick around and say, you know, there's, no bird. I'm absolutely sure there's no bird here because there were no weeds where he was pointing. So then my buddy had his lab with him. The lab ran up about 10 feet in front of topper dug down into the snow. And this rooster flies up out of the out of the snow, totally buried. And it was a pretty easy shot that I made. Fortunately, <laughs> uh, or to- I've missed those. The topper probably would have killed me, but, oh, yeah. um, that was probably the most memorable point of, uh, of the fall. Anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. But oh, yeah, happened. no,
0: that's the, hunting stories are always welcomed on the podcast and, and, and encouraged in that in that sense. Is so. Here's your first pointing dog, right after having labs second. for a while. Oh,
1: second. No, okay. I had yeah, second. Yeah, I had a um, I had a one before a tricolor whose name was whose name was Burr. Who uh, familiar was name after, to me? Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> kidding. Uh, that'll probably come up later. Yeah. So, in, in any event. Um, he would, Burr, was a, Burr wasn't the smartest dog in the world, but he was a very good hunting dog. Topper is every bit as good a hunter, but he's quite a bit smarter. Um, so, But what I learned is it's great to hunt with a lab, but there's just something about seeing a dog go on point. And um, until you've seen it or experienced it, it, it's just, you know, it's an incredible thing to see that there's a creature that, you know, can find a bird, get the bird to lock down, and then just stand there. Yeah. So, and I'm sure you know exactly
0: what I'm talking about. Well I do. I, I certainly that's one of the things that has fascinated me and my with my setters and hunting over a, you know a number of pointing dogs. One of the things I haven't really done is hunted, especially Grouse and woodcock. I've interviewed a few folks earlier this summer interviewed some Michigan Grouse and woodcock hunters that you know are avid. They hunt with labs, and that's actually something I would like to experience. But on the on the setter th- side of things, I definitely know exactly what you're talking about, and it's one of the things that I appreciate most about going into the woods with my setters.
1: Yeah, there are some guys here, I think, around Traverse City who only use labs. I'm going to try that with Cash. I think, this coming fall. Um, I haven't done it yet. They obviously need to stay in close to make it work.
0: Yeah, actually uh I mentioned when we were talking the other day I mentioned Fritz Heller and he and his brother Rick and some of their friends. They are around that Traverse City area. They hunt with Labs and I've interviewed Fritz a couple times on here and they've they kind of actually have a have a style that's fairly unique I would say to them at least from the people that I've talked to. But uh yeah, they are they are avid avid grouse and woodcock hunters and they use Labs and they've got I've never seen them but I I know that they've got great dogs and they they love to hunt with them. Right. So was the other setter a Ryman, like your your new no, one? He was, he was a Llewellyn. He was, okay. Okay.
1: He was a Llewellyn, and he was from New York. And then I think the guy who it was called like Pebble Brook Kennels or something, and my dog trainer friend recommended him. And then when it came time for another lab, or excuse me, another setter, I think he had passed away and okay. the kennel was gone. Um, I was shocked that um, Burke kind of tore things up a little bit around here, and my wife is at least part saint, and I was sure that I was never going to have another setter. And then, <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't just, I didn't think I was moping around, and I don't know, about a week after Burr was gone, So said, why don't you just find another setter and just be done with this? So it was really one of the, well, she's done a bunch of great kind things, but that was right near the top of the list. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So, do you kind of see yourself as sort of maintaining a setter and a lab for the foreseeable future, just based yeah, on what you like I, to do?
1: I, I, yeah, I think so. Because I, you know, I like to bird hunt. I, I don't. I have a bunch of buddies who who deer hunt and mm-hmm. bear hunt, and I'm fine with it. I just, you know, prefer to do things with dogs.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. In fact, if it weren't for if I didn't have dogs, I might probably wouldn't hunt.
0: Well, you're not the only person to say that, and I yeah. certainly, I I know the, I used to deer hunt more, and now I do it less and less, and it's just one of those things where to go deer hunting, you're leaving the dogs at home, and it's fall, and exactly. it's hunting season, and yeah, it makes less and less sense to me every year, but I do like to have venison in the freezer if I can, which yeah, me too. I don't have yeah. much of it left at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit more about your 2020 upland season, because it sounds like you did make a trip out to North Dakota. I know that you hunted some grouse from Woodcock in Michigan. Any other out-of-state trips? Any other kinds of hunting?
1: Well, we ended up, because we were um, when we were in North Dakota, and we usually hunt pheasants there for three or four days and then come back east and duck hunt. But that got that got frozen out while we were there. So instead of going duck hunting, we went to... and. Uh, pheasant hunted around there and um and that was pretty good too i hadn't really hunted much in south dakota before and uh you know there was a we, there was a bunch of good cover there and as i'm sure you're aware their dnr does a great job uh, and the state does a great job of maximizing that resource
0: yeah definitely i i did my first wild bird hunt pheasant hunt in south dakota this year and i had a i had a great time it was a pretty short yeah. trip i haven't been out there a lot but definitely beautiful country beautiful habitat i hope to spend some more time out there in right. the coming years
1: so it was north it was north dakota south dakota yep. it was um upper peninsula and then around here
0: and how was the grouse and woodcock hunting this year based on your experience
1: you know when we went the cover was terrific but the hunting really wasn't very good i don't know if there were there was just more pressure because there were a bunch of people I think who weren't working, who were hunting more. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I don't know if this is true. I also heard that West Nile had come through there, but I don't know if that was true. So that was pretty slow around two, three, four hours North of here. If you got the right spot, it was pretty good. Okay. And of course it's always fun to be in the woods, right? Oh Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You could be doing a lot worse for yourself than spending a day in the grouse woodcock woods, no matter that's how, what many, I was thinking. how many birds you flush.
1: Yeah. But right, uh, that's yeah, right.
0: most people that do it a fair amount, you know, we can't help ourselves, but get a little bit analytical about it.
1: No, that's right. That's right. And I'm not, you know, I have friends and, and you, I'm sure you do too, who won't hunt woodcock. I'm not one of them. I like to hunt them and I like to eat them. And, and they also won't, with a pointing dog they won't shoot a bird if, a, if, yeah, if the, it's if the bird busted or something yeah. i'm not that way either you know i think and just my opinion the dog knows the difference whether or not he or she held that bird I, and, and i'm no expert that's just how that's just how i do that's it i would say that it. i'm not i'm not a purist um yeah probably grow. i mean there's people who probably wouldn't don't do it this way and it's just fine with me it's just whatever anybody wants to do is by me as long as it's legal and fair.
0: Right. Yeah. I would agree with that. I I've certainly been around folks that have a, I I don't even like to use the word disdain, but I've seen it. I've, I've sensed it around woodcock, almost like, you know, it's kind of like they're wasting their time, that sort of thing. I've I've gone through a little bit of, you know, back in the day I used to hunt without dogs and I've never flushed woodcock because you could imagine, you know, the dog helps you find a lot more and unless you step on a woodcock, you're, you're not really going to flush them. But then I, then when I was first getting into pointing dogs, Woodcock are, they can be a lot more cooperative for the dogs. They can, you can yep. find more of them. So then I kind of had a little, I was really into hunting them for a while because they they provided me a lot of opportunity. And now I'm sort of coming back to, I love when my dogs point them, but I'm, I'm not at, always as eager to take a shot. I will, I, you know, I, I'll bag woodcock and I like to eat them as well, but I'm pretty, I'm very patient with my woodcock opportunities. And if I get a good shot, I'll take it.
1: Yeah, good for you. My first lab I had, the one that was bred accidentally, the the one who, who ended up being the good hunter, Max, his sister Maggie was terrible, but Max was a great hunter. And I used to take Max, I guess I said I never did take him grouse. And I haven't hunted recent labs with, for grouse and woodcock, but I did with Max and, um, you know, Max would retrieve anything. If you threw a rock in the water, he'd, he'd know which one it was and bring it back. Yeah. But when, when we would hunt woodcock, if I shoot a woodcock, he'd r- run over to it and he'd put his foot on it until I got there to pick it up. But he would not, he would not put that bird in his mouth.
0: <laughs> I feel like I've heard of so, other dogs doing that.
1: Oh yeah. He would just stand there. And this dog was a retrieving fool, but he, wouldn't retrieve this woodcock, and he sort of, he'd say, you know, it's sort of like he'd give me this expression, well, look, here it is, I'm standing on it, but I'm not picking it up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, he said, yeah, here you go, here's your bird. Do you ever get into, that's one thing I, I imagine would be quite a sight, is if you, you cut a, a high-drive lab loose into a cover that was filled up with woodcock. I imagine that could be chaos.
1: Yep. Yeah, it could be chaos. I'm <laughs> sure that's right.
0: Have, you ever, sure that's have right. you ever hunted
1: sharptail or anything else? Well, I've hunted sharp you know, we actually have in the extreme eastern part of of the upper peninsula in Michigan. We have yes. a, a remnant population, maybe you know it's a remnant population of sharptail that the DNR has worked very hard to expand and they've been there's a short season but they've been pretty successful. Yeah. Um, there's a special hay that grows um, that's very sought after in the upper peninsula. I, they may only get one cutting, but they don't get any more than two, but it's a really great kind of hay that that ground for whatever reason is good for. And so a bunch of the farmers up there sign up with HAP, which is what we call our hunter access program. Yep. And um, I have hunted sharptails there. And then we, we end up running into some sharp tails while we're pheasant hunting in North Dakota, yep. especially Although we don't usually target them and we get, by the time we get out there, the first part of November, they're pretty wary and it's very difficult to get close to them. Right. Yep. I've never done it early in the fall okay. where you can still get, you know, where they're still in their, um, family groups and you can get close to them. I'd like to try that sometime, but I, I never have. I have hunted quail, not with my dogs, but in, uh, Georgia on a plantation and I did, and I haven't seen any in about 15 years, but there used to be We're Lansing is in the extreme Northern Bobway quail range. And we used to have some quail. I was very surprised the first time I saw one and there was a short, there used to be a season. I shot a couple, um, burr, my, yeah, my burr, my first English setter, we, we were out, uh, pheasant hunting and he locked up and, you know, I didn't believe him again, but he was on point and he wouldn't move, and I walked up to him, and I could see his head wasn't moving, but his eyes were darting all around, like here, 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 and here. And I couldn't figure out what was going on, so I walked up and flushed a whole covey of quail. And he had never been on quail before and had never pointed multiple birds, and he didn't know what to do except stand there and move his eyes. <laughs> it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen, and, and never happened again. Uh, but it was really something to see him point that, you know, that covey, and just see him kind of flick his eyes around.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. I, I The early season sharptail is one that I've I've talked about plenty. That That's become one of my favorite trips of the year. I really enjoy doing that, and I haven't spent much time out there late. We did see some sharptails when I was in South Dakota in November, and like you said, and I had heard that plenty, they, they tend to group up and get a lot warier. But this this maybe this is a dumb question. Are there wild pheasants left in Michigan are you hunting wild pheasants because I know they have a release program I'm pretty sure
1: there um we do have wild pheasants we don't have a lot of wild pheasants but we do have wild pheasants um we have a uh, Michigan has a pheasant restoration plan that pheasants forever is key in along with the DNR and other partners and we do have a fair amount of state land that's managed for pheasants and there are you know, private landowners who have pheasant ground. We, I have permission to hunt on um, this really great conservationist His name's Tom Lounsbury. He's got about 100 acres in um, CRP with a bunch of nice, you know, big blue stem Indian grass and some switchgrass. And we hunt wild pheasants there. Um, okay. You know, we've had a couple, Topper had a couple nice points this year over there. And the last day, uh, my son Tom and I went over there and it was. I used to hunt these dogs together, but uh, it doesn't really work very well. But anyway, Cash um, put up a really nice rooster that I could have shot the bird, but my son had the better shot, so he got it. So, anyway, that so the answer to that is yes. Yeah, I think our harvest is about a hundred thousand birds, which is not a big harvest at all. And if you want to target wild pheasants, you really have to work at it, but you can do it. Sure.
0: Is there? I- is there also a release program, too? Because I, I just want to clarify that in case I misspoke.
1: No, you did not misspeak. There is a new release program. That's what I thought. Um, it's got a
0: name for it.
1: Yeah, and I can't think of what it is called, but the legislature, and it was fairly controversial, they just passed a uh, pheasant stamp program where you're going to hunt on state land or private land that isn't your own. I think that's the rule. you got to buy a $25 pheasant stamp. And the proceeds of that are going to stocking, the the, the thought being that, you know, it gives people an opportunity to hunt who might not otherwise have one. Right, right.
0: Yeah. Okay. The other thing you mentioned was the, the UP Sharptails. I've been near that area. I've never gone to the, like, the real northeast corner where the haplands are and stuff. I'd right. love to get over right. there and see it. We have, we've we got a similar thing going on in Wisconsin where we have some— they're trying to make them less isolated pockets of habitat and make them more, improve the connectivity between these places, but we've got sharptails here as well. The hunting season no longer exists, and Minnesota has sharptails too, as you can imagine. It's right on the edge of the prairie, but they're awesome birds, and it's I know that all three states, while not thought of as a sharptail destination state, no. they, uh, they all have populations, and I know there's DNR and agencies, and the grouse societies that are working to keep them there and improve right. their habitat
1: Well, nick if you were going to go for an early sharp tail season yeah i don't want to hear any secrets but what what time of year would you go and where would you go
0: well i can tell you that what i've done in the in the last three years i've gone to the same general area i i go to north dakota western north dakota and i've right around mid-september The person that I go out and hunt with and stay with, he always says the later in September, the better, just because then your, your weather is going to be better. But I'm always, I I like to go around mid-September because I like to get back here and get in the groove for rough grouse hunting in the woods. So I have, I've rolled, you know, quote unquote, rolled the dice three years in a row, gone out to North Dakota in mid-September and you're going to have some warm days where you probably won't be hunting in the afternoon but you get up at sunrise and you can hunt every morning and i i think i think weather is the key factor i think you can kind of go anywhere you know there are sharp tails whether it's north dakota south dakota nebraska you could kind of go anywhere there are sharp tails it's just that early season i think weather is probably the biggest x factor but but like you we alluded to and
1: the weather you mean is the heat right the heat
0: yes the heat yep and so you've got to have dog power. You've got to have, you know, if you have more than one dog, you can rotate them in and out, but they're going to cover ground. And there's going to be days where the heat will probably take you out of the field unless you just get real lucky. And I would say that I've been pretty fortunate. We haven't had, when I've been out there, we haven't had a heat wave roll through where it's 80, 90 degrees and you're done, done. It's always, you know, maybe it gets to 70 in the afternoon, but we still got to hunt in the morning. That's been my experience. Got it. Well, we definitely have. I've definitely seen the ability for my setters and the dogs that I've been hunting with to get on cooperative birds, if you will, where you can you can have great great points, good shooting opportunities on really good numbers of birds in that early season, and that's why. Yeah, and if I contrast it to what it would be like, you know, usually I'll, I'll hunt. Early season rough grouse here, but as you all know, the rough grouse woods in September are not the most fun place to be. So to go no. to go out there and actually stretch my legs and let my dogs stretch their legs, it, it just seems to be a really good time of year to do that kind of a trip and let the dogs get some conditioning and exercise. And
1: no, that's right, that's right. Well, I need I I think I need to put that on my list of things to do.
0: Yeah, um, I think you'd enjoy it.
1: The um, hey, just not to be on my. A soapbox too much, but (laughs) as you know, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are dedicated. Sole mission is um, upland habitat, upland conservation, and without, you know, those organizations and others, you know, like them, we don't have the opportunities that we have, because they really, they have made a difference, and and in the case of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, you know, over 90% of the money that we get goes to mission. You know, we almost always have a four-star uh, charity, well, I think it's called Charity Navigator. Charity
0: Navigator, yeah, it is.
1: Yeah, we almost always have the highest ranking because, you know, those guys up in the cities are cheap and all the money, <laughs> you know, gets in the ground. Or, or it gets to kids for education, it gets for advocacy, yeah. you know, it gets to getting women outdoors, it gets to to getting people who didn't, you know, the best way to become a hunter is to grow up in a hunting family the real challenge is to get people who didn't grow up in a hunting family, but who have an interest in it outside so they can do it. Because, you know, there's a lot of obstacles. There are. Um, And and it's not, you know, it's not obstacles like laws or regulations or prohibitions. It's just, you know, do I have a dog? Do I know somebody who has a dog? What kind of gun do I have? Can I afford to do this? Where do I go? Access is probably the biggest thing. And then, of course, there's just plain old, Hunter safety, so it's kind of a tough thing to recruit new people, and that's that you know that's what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's that's a one of the main reasons I would I would agree with everything you said there and acknowledge that. You know, I've I've said on here before. I, I went for my first wild pheasant hunt this year at you know 34 years old and. I haven't been a member of Pheasants Forever my whole life, but certainly within the last five or six years, I've been a member just because they are. They're the habitat organization, and I know that whether it's sharptails or prairie chickens or pheasants, or, I, the work that they're doing is helping in that regard. And it's also helping at the macro level to, you know, create ambassadors and awareness for upland birds, conservation, it's it's well worth my $35 at a minimum every year, no problem. And yeah. that, along with a number of other conservation organizations that I choose to support.
1: Right. But yeah, yeah, I think most people who are conservationists support more than one. Right. You know, I'm a member of DU, rough grouse, yep. trout unlimited, backcountry hunters and anglers. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are good things to do. Yeah.
0: Going back to what you said about Folks getting into hunting for sure. That is one thing that I always say I had the easy way in. My, and my dad wasn't, he wasn't a huge upland bird hunter or anything. He did it, but they gave me my first opportunities. And for, you know, much to their surprise, I just became hooked on rough grouse at the time. And I was huh. always trying to find ways to go hunting and they enabled that and, and really helped me out. So I, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to both my parents for allowing me to pursue that my whole life, but that was the easy way in. And there's a lot of things you just kind of learn, sort of take for granted the, you know, the firearm safety, you went through that with a bunch of kids and that's different. There's access to information I think is improved for a lot of folks that are, that are coming at it today, but there's, there's probably you know, less access and less habitat than, than maybe there used to be. And there are plenty of barriers to entry, that's for sure.
1: No, I think the barriers to entry is probably the right way to
0: put it. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get too far down that road without covering one of the other reasons we brought you on here and i have got to thank you charlie because your novel the gray drake which is the middle novel in a series of that is currently three books but will soon be four you got me back on a a reading kick that i've uh, i've just been devouring novels lately since i picked up the gray drake i think it was in november i picked that up and uh i buzzed through that one so we'll have you talk about that but thank you because i've been enjoying a lot of good reads lately
1: good good well you know, that's one thing we can all do and stay safe, right? Yes,
0: yes. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about what was the inspiration for you to either uh, pick up the pen or, or sit down at the keyboard and start writing the the Pink Pony, which is the first book.
1: Yeah, the um, well, I grew up in a reading family, and my mother actually. Was she was an army nurse in World War II, but went back to school, got an English degree, and by the time she was done, she had many, many masters and taught at Michigan State. So she she was always interested in a, in English and in, in writing and reading. So I probably and my dad my dad's ninety seven, and he probably reads at least two books a week, maybe three. So I come from a reading family, but okay. I, I, you know I always wanted to see if I could write a book, and I we live very close. Uh, as I said to Michigan State, I had been in the media business my whole life. I had a radio station that was very close to Michigan State, and at lunch or in the afternoon, i go take courses over at Michigan State, and I took a bunch of creative writing and courses like that. So I decided I was going to write a book, and I and I courted my wife on Mackinac Island and um, thought, well, what a great place for a mystery. So that was how that started. The Pink Pony is actually the second book. The first book oh, okay. was published under my— well. It's the first book in this series. The, the, it's, I won't bore you with all the details, but I wrote a book first with the same cast of characters under my real name, but no one can say or spell Macellravy. So then <laughs> I decided to come up with a pen name. My pen name is Charles Cutter, and I picked Cutter because it's easy to say, easy to spell. And I and I spent you know, spent a lot of time in bookstores. If you ever in a bookstore, when people start looking at books, they usually start at the beginning of the alphabet. So I thought, well, I ought to have a name near the beginning of the alphabet. So, Good thinking. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, those two books are out. The world changed. You know, there's all kinds of publishing now. Yep. Self-publishing. I bought the copyrights back and then reissued the Pink Pony um, and it's gotten really good reviews. It's selling really well. As I think I said, there's a promotion this month uh, with Amazon with it. So anyway, the book, takes a murder mystery, takes place on Mackinac Island. The second book in the series, The Great Drake, uh, the Great Drake is a famous dry fly. And it's the name of a fictitious lodge on the Aisable River in, um, near Grayling, Michigan. And the Aisable is considered by many to be the best trout stream east of the Mississippi. And there's a famous hatch there called the Hex Hatch. It's the Hexagenia lumbata. And it's a giant fly that hatches at night. And it makes fools out of the brown trout and fools out of fishermen. And the premise of this story is um, the best guy on the river is out fishing for browns during the Hex Hatch. And he's found the next morning at the bottom of the river with the uh, anchor chain from his boat wrapped around his Ankle. So anyway, that's how that the murder is set up. There's a lot of real places in in the book, not real people, um, real places in the Pink Pony, real places in Bare Bones, which is the third book, and um, and these books are really all about Michigan and the settings, and Michigan is really ends up being a character because you can't really you know read these books or understand them without you know having all the um, you know every state has its own. Sort of strange cult things, and Michigan's no different yep. than any other state. So, um, in fact, when I had a New York editor for the Grey Drake for a while, and the protagonist in this book is sort of a, um, a brilliant but in some ways um, broken down uh, attorney. And he has this expression when things aren't going right, he says, You know, I'm euchred. And yep. you being from Minnesota, <laughs> I know you know exactly what that means, <laughs> right? Yep. But Anyway, so I'd send the manuscript off to the editor and I would keep coming back. And first, you know, she said, well, there's misspelling or no such word or cut this <laughs> out. And finally, I just called her and I said, look, you know, I really appreciate all you've done. But if you don't understand Euchre and what it means and what it means to people who say it, then we're just it, this. you're just we're just not going to be able to work together Yeah, because that, you know. There's no expression that, that really matches, you know, well, I guess I'm euchred. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, that was one thing that we, you and I were talking about the other day. I've picked up enough about the one thing I've I've gotten to meet a lot more folks from Michigan over the last five to six years, and that's some of my work and now doing the podcast and all that stuff. And one thing I pick up on right away is just that Michigan pride, the same way that we've got Minnesota pride. And, you know, right. that's, that's probably not unique to – these two states, but it's very evident. And I've got some friends. My buddy Jay Dowd. Yeah, you know, I hunt with him at least once a year. And I'm not nearly. I could. I can't even call myself a fly fisherman. I've dabbled in it, but I don't have the appreciation for the stuff in the book. But I. But I knew I. I could still get the sense of how you know detailed and intricate it was, and I knew that those guys would appreciate it. So I was telling you that I recommended the book, and they had picked it up. And I'll have to see if. Jay has dove into it yet, but you could just tell all of the Michigan being a character and the river, the fly fishing stuff. And in the book that I read, The Great Drake, there there are some hints at upland hunting. There's there's an English setter right. in it. There's references to woodcock banding and grouse cover, and there's even a Parker 28 gauge. Do you have a Parker 28 gauge, Charlie? That was one thing I wanted to ask you.
1: No, I don't. Okay. I don't. I have a, I have a really nice... Uh, um, Beretta over under twenty gauge, okay. but no, I don't have a Parker. The um, well, as you and I talked about, the um, you know, fly fishing and grouse hunting, yes, you know, are quite a bit similar in that they're very difficult, and you don't you don't measure success really with what's in your game bag at the end of the day, right? And, and I release all the trout I catch anyway. But they're very difficult things, and it's a little bit of an art form. Yeah. Um, yeah. I tried to make the gray drake have enough fly fishing in there. So it was authentic, but not so detailed that people who didn't fly fish would have their eyes glaze over. Yeah. So, in fact, I had a whole big thing at, the, at one point at the very beginning on the life cycle of this, the, the hacks hatch. And uh, one of the readers said, Boy, you know, you really ought to take that out. So, you know, what's amazing, it starts out as a 95,000-word book, ends up being 75,000 yeah. words, and it's and it's way better. Yeah. Because one of the things that somebody told me was, if it wasn't in there, the reader doesn't know that they're missing something. Sure, yeah. So.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess in that regard, I certainly, you know, I never felt like I was in over my head. And I it actually was kind of fitting for me because right i don't maybe this had something to do with the reason why because i had bought this book we had emailed probably this summer earlier this year and i didn't read it and i had just had my our uh, annual grouse camp my we had two friends from michigan come over and that was in early november so we were they were talking about fishing of course you know over the course of a couple days and actually My friend from over here, they've been doing a camping trip, and I'm certain that they they went camping last summer and were fishing on the El Sabo, and they fished the hex hatch. So there was a lot of that. Really? Yeah, there was these three guys that all fished the hex hatch last summer. So there was a lot of that conversation going on at the grouse camp. And so then a week or two later, I picked up the gray drake and started reading it. I think that actually kind of helped to suck me into it. And uh, I, yeah, I I picked up on some of that, but no, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I've been on this kick of reading a bunch of novels. I just was really reminded about what it's like to get sucked into a page turning story like that. And, uh, I've, I really enjoyed some of the books I've read, including that one. And for the listeners, the, I just noticed that all three of those books that we're talking about are, if you happen to be a subscriber to Kindle Unlimited, they're all available on Kindle Unlimited if not, they're all available on Amazon for I think five bucks is the most expensive, and the first one, the Pink Pony, I think is two ninety seven right now. And I'll i throw yeah, one. there's a special right now. Yeah, I'll throw and links are, in the show notes for all that stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you. They're available in paperback also, and they're yeah. at a bookstore. So
0: no, let me it's ask you this as a, everywhere. as the author, do you do you prefer somebody to Buy the paperback. Do you cringe when somebody buys it on Kindle or Kindle Unlimited? I want to be—I want to be of service to you, Charlie. You
1: no, know, no, you know it doesn't. As long as somebody's buying them, you know I don't care. I, I mean, if it were totally up to me, I'd have everybody buy it at a bookstore because sure. I, I love bookstores. Um, it's been very hard for people in the bookstore business right. uh, lately. Yeah. Hopefully, that'll get better. But um, from an economic point of view. The royalties are about the same, yeah. whether it's at a bookstore, whether it's a paperback, or whether it goes on Kindle. One of the nice things, the covers are pretty, I'm biased, but I, I think the covers are pretty compelling in these yeah, books. They are. So that's yeah. one nice thing about the paperback in there. So that's a good thing about it. Um, the new one, the working title of the new one is called The Crooked Angel, and that's supposed to come out in May. And, of course, everybody else, all the editors have it now, so they're all having a field day with it but that's <laughs> yeah, i'm sure you know you know how that goes right it's not i try not to take any of it personally right
0: but, right yeah yeah and right. i don't
1: fight over commas or anything else so okay um, <laughs> and the but these are you know above all these are murder mystery courtroom drama thrillers yes. with a, uh, a principal character whose name is Bur Lafayette, who's a brilliant but sort of a man at loose ends and uh he he's a brilliant lawyer his personal life is pretty much of a mess but he's a real fighter and uh never gives up so
0: yeah um, and that's we were alluding earlier to uh the name of your your first setter, burr and uh that's that's the main character that's of, how
1: he got the name burr that's right Laffayette. yeah that's right,
0: right. <laughs> that's cool okay dumb question that we haven't even covered charlie were you a lawyer
1: yeah, yeah, I, I'm a recovering lawyer. Okay, um, okay.
0: I don't know that. I, I think I read that in your bio, but I don't know that we actually addressed right. it here.
1: Yeah, I went. I went to graduated from the University of Michigan Law School, and I practiced law for a very short time at two very good law firms. And I just really, I think that I'm better off, and the legal world is much better off with me not. <laughs> I'm not practicing law, although I pay my bar dues every year. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, I I hope you keep writing these these novels. And, uh, I'm going to shamelessly throw in there that I hope one in the future is heavily focused on Upland bird hunting.
1: <laughs> yeah. We can, yeah. There's no reason for it that it shouldn't be right. I mean, there's so many characters Yeah. in Upland bird hunting that we both know that, um, yeah, there's, I'm, I started the fifth book in the series a couple of weeks ago. So, um, there's plenty of opportunity wow, cool. to, um, to get some Upland, get Upland stuff in there.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. I like I said I'm I'm really glad that we got connected actually through AJ and I don't know exactly how you guys got connected, but I'm happy that worked out and I enjoyed the book and it's a it's a, you know, relatively speaking very small price to pay so I'd encourage anybody that's out there looking for a winter read go grab go grab A number of these books. I'm going to start the Pink Pony tonight. I think because I just finished a different book last night. So I'm uh, great. I'm all in. Let me know what you think. (laughs) I will. I will be happy to do that. Anything else? Where else could people go, Charlie, if they wanted more information? Uh, You've got a website, right? Is it CharlesCutter.com?
1: Yeah, CharlesCutter.com. Okay. Um, They could go there. And if they go to Amazon, all these books are previewed on Amazon. Also, Um, there's actually a trailer uh, for the Gray Drake. Yes, um,
0: I watched that this morning on the website.
1: Yeah. Um and just as a real quick aside, what yeah. prompted this story was there's a famous boat that is only used on the Osabel, called the fittingly enough, the Osabel River boat. And it's it's very long it's about almost twenty feet long, it's barely three feet wide and um it was used logging, because um, that's right in the heart of where all the white pine were. In Michigan, it was used to take loggers and tools up and downstream. And if you've ever seen one of these, they're a real work of art. They're usually varnished. They have one or two seats in them. They're worthless for anything other than trout fishing, because you really can't turn them around. They basically go downstream, and that's it. And, I, um, and they use a chain. You've probably seen chain anchors. It's just a bunch of uh, long heavy chain that's used to anchor in a river because it doesn't hang up you know like a traditional anchor would and so once when I saw that boat fished in that boat I thought boy this is um I got the idea of having somebody um drown that way and then that was how that was how the whole thing started so really the whole idea of the book started with the boat.
0: Yeah, and that was uh, certainly a recurring, the Osabo River boats were mentioned a ton in the book. And you know what? I don't even right. know that I picked up on the fact that that was like the, you would say, maybe the make or the model of the boat. That's actually what they're called.
1: Yeah, no, that's the, yeah. It's, um most of them are homemade, actually. Okay. Because they're, they're made by craftsmen. So, but that's, that is the name for that type of boat, the Osabo River boat.
0: Very cool. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think we hit on it quite a bit, but for anybody listening in Michigan or that's got ties, you know, the references in the book I think would be uh, even more enjoyable to you than than they were to me, and I really enjoyed it myself. So, right. Anything else? So obviously the novels we covered that. Your work with Pheasants Forever, and we'll give people another nudge. You know, go and support Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. Anything else we missed, Charlie?
1: No well I don't look look this is I don't want to make this too technical, but the Conservation Reserve program is the one uh, conservation program that has done more for water quality, soil control, upland bird hunting, and conservation than anything else in the history of the United States. And for whatever George W. Bush's shortcomings were, He and his administration were great proponents of CRP and no president since has, uh, we still have a good CRP, but not a great CRP. And anybody who wants to have more upland opportunities or just more conservation, more songbirds, more wildflowers, more monarch butterflies really need to get behind the conservation program.
0: Cool. That's a good note to end on. I appreciate that, Charlie. I, I encourage everybody to go check out the novels via Charles Cutter, uh, Pink Pony, Gray Drake, and what was the third Bear one? Bare Bones. Bare Bones. Bare Bones. Bare Bones. And, Bones. and yeah. more coming. So we'll. Uh, I'll put the links to those in the show notes. Charlie, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat up and bird hunting and all this other stuff with me and the listeners. I appreciate it. If you ever had this way, you look me up, all right?
1: Definitely. Maybe we go on a early season uh, sharp tail hunt. Hey.
0: You don't have to ask me twice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. All right,
0: Nick. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. You take care, Charlie. All right. No, okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onax Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, Dog Electronic Shooters Protection, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast.